Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Gentlemen, quickly, this way. We have a problem. The 80s kids' towers have been invaded by terrorists. I think about a dozen of them. They're holding all the films of 1988 at hostage on the roof. But I think their real objective is to gain access to our safe, where I store all the biscuits. This week's biscuit, incidentally, is the McVitie's Digestive. For me, it is the definitive biscuit in many uh, ways. Ian, hmm? Ian, Ian, if you just look over there... Yes? I've erected a, a full-size replica TARDIS... Here's uh-huh. a brightly coloured scarf. Don't want to hear about biscuits again this it's year. It's the year Enjoy of the biscuit, Leo. It's my new running gag. <laughs> so, yes, welcome to the 80s kids again. And in, in the true 80s kids style, uh, we, 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 it, it's good. I mean, the 80s are nearly over for us in, in our retrospective. We are, we are on 1988, the year, as you may have uh, taken from Ian's opening there, uh, of Die Hard. Well, are we downhearted at the prospect of going into the 90s? Slightly, probably. But, you well, know, we're we've, seen, we've seen the ending, so of course we're feeling a yes. bit down about it all. <laughs> For, yes, but it'll be fine because after that we've got the 2000s, which are a lot better. But uh, for now, uh, you know, we've got to gird our loins and get on with it. And I'm ready to, to take on 1988, for I am Leo, and I am one of the 80s kids, and I am joined today by... I am Ian, I'm another one of the 80s kids, and I say we pick off these terrorists one by one. <laughs> well, we might need some more help, so who else is <laughs> Yeah, it? absolutely, I'm just, hang on, I'm just putting on my white vest, ah, and I am Justin, another 80s kids, ready for action. That's fine, yeah. I'll be the black cop outside. <laughs> 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 Let's get some Christmas music on. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, Die Hard, my favourite Christmas movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, two of them, in fact. How can the same crap happen to the same guy twice? Yeah, but the second one doesn't play up the Christmas angle as much. <clears throat> it's just an awful coincidence, all things considered. Anyway, <laughs> should we start with action heroes? Do we have any offering some from Arnie and Sly? And, and now entering the fray, you know, our, our soon-to-be bald-headed new action hero, fresh from yeah. moonlighting on television. Uh, shall we begin with the old Aksharanis? Yeah, well, it is, it is interesting to note that as far as I can see, we don't have uh, Arnie or Sly in 1988. They did not make an appearance either of them thus leaving the door open uh well, to the likes of um check now. i think you're not quite right there yeah I'm just rolling down we've got rambo three. Oh, rambo right so stallone well he was there. sort of in that wasn't he old sly i've i've never oh and red heat yeah, right red underneath heat. it so they are so there. They're there, but I mean, I've never seen rambo three i've actually only seen one of the rambo movies uh, and that's the new one 
Yeah, I, I can't remember, to be honest. They all blur a bit. With I me. have only ever Rambo's... seen First Blood, so I better start squatting up on them, because we do talk about these these actors. And well, Rambo blood. 3, as far as I recall, that every, the one thing everybody says is that Rambo 3 rewrites the Vietnam War so that we, want, so that we as in the Americans, the Americans won. Yeah. Which is like, okay. That's unusual, though, for Americans to write a film where they rewrite the history so that it's come out better. That is unusual. I'm <laughs> Um, and then, of course, the other one is uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger um, playing a, a Russian in Red Heat. Yeah. It's, a, it's a kind of buddy cop, you know, they don't like each other and they do like each other movie with James Belushi playing the opposite part. And it, per, as far as I remember, perfectly serviceable. I've seen it about twice. Yeah, uh, it, it's, not, it's not good. It's not right. Okay, here's the thing. Commando... A lot better than I remember it. Yeah. Raw deal, terrible. Red Heat, in between, I think. It's but, not as good as... But as, 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 as he plays his large, stoic uh, Soviet officer, is, is this the beginning of his trajectory towards full-time, full-comedy films? Well, we do have twins this year as well. Oh, so, right. That's yeah, it is his full trajectory towards comedy, then. So, My God. Yeah. Short that fat one. actors. That's, I, I just loves them this year. Well, what's interesting is that in both cases, Arnie's playing the uh, straight man. And in Twins, obviously, it kind of works because Danny DeVito's a, a great, you know, he can be the wacky one. I don't think James Belushi it works quite as well with. In fact, I think it might have been better if someone had had the sort of presence of mind to think, um, hey, you know what? What if James Belushi was the straight man? I think because... Uh, James Belushi, in the latter years, has had a show, uh, like a sitcom, in which I think he's got this kind of manner that says, if he's being like a sort of wisecracking every man kind of character, that's fine. And what would have been great is if, if you know, Schwarzenegger had been a bit more crazy, like stoic but crazy. I mean, there is a bit where Arnie drives a articulated lorry into a, the front of a building aping the bid in Terminator where he drives the 4x4 into the police station but with that exception yeah I, I just think that it, it would have been better if Arnie had been the one because as evidence later in Kindergarten Cop Arnie has the, the capability to ham it up for a comic effect Absolutely. Uh, we're so, also fully in the throes of the I'll be back catchphrase business going on right now aren't we? Yes very much so. Um, I mean, but we've got quite a new a lot. I mean, I think one of the things that this shows is that, you know, with Rambo 3 and Red Heat, that whole, and of course, Arnie deciding that he's going to jump the action shark and get into doing a bit of comedy for a bit. It, the door is open for some new types of action, which has already been prefigured in, in 1987. So we have um, Die Hard, of course, is the, the big one, but we've also got uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme making his debut in Bloodsport. Oh. So that, that comes out this year. I'm pretty sure there was a... Maybe I'm getting that wrong. Was Beverly Hills Cop 2 the year before? Because there's that kind of feeling of people being more wisecracking, that that's where action is going, that we're going to have people continually, you know... Well, they, they attempted to, attempt to, to rebrand Crocodile Dundee as, as a more of an action hero because the first film was a romantic yes, comedy yes, two worlds course, colliding. Yes. Now we have Crocodile Dundee takes on drug dealers yeah. with hilarious effects. <laughs> of course, I mean, you know, we, we've got uh, Jackie Chan 
circling around. He's got Police Story 2 out, which, uh, you know, that, those were surprise martial arts hits in the States. I don't think we ever really got that over in the UK. They certainly didn't get cinema releases because there wasn't enough room in the cinemas. And, and on the the other thing, of course, of note, action-wise, is Young Guns came out in 1988. Yeah. A film notable for the fact that, uh, obviously, it's, it follows the Lost Boys, and it was in that period when it was like, you know, they wanted to get that, distill that essence of Lost Boys and put it into other movies, and this was the first of the the failures that came along from that, I think. I mean, it was never as big as the Lost Boys, Young Guns. At the time, it was big. It's kind of been forgotten these days. Fairly grungy sort of Western starring, you know... Charlie Sheen, Charlie Sheen, yeah. yeah. Keeper Sutherland, yeah. Diamond Phillips. I can tell you who's in oh, it. Oh no, no. I'm, <laughs> I was trying to think of a group noun for them. They're not the Brat Pack, are they? But can, um, I, can I hear the voice of the wife in the background? Yes, she is here. So yeah, I mean, but, I mean, the, the point here is that um, that's where action is going. They want it to be more. They don't want, as, you know, muscles have started to be on the way out. They have. They've had muscles yeah, for years. And... Play Hard probably is the real kind of key there. That's changing. I mean, it, it's changing the look of that kind of enormous guy, isn't it? So it's, 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 definitely, it's definitely kind of shifting. Well, and, of course, I mean, with Jean-Claude Van Damme coming on, he's a short, agile Belgian. So, yeah, yeah but know, still, he's still he quite well-toned. I, mean, I, th- I think, you know, John McClane kind of sums up, because in many ways, this sounds a bizarre thing to say. He's also an everyman, because he has marital problems and kids and yep. blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he's just also a cop, isn't he? He's just a cop. He wasn't... I mean, these days, John McClane can single-handedly destroy an entire army. But back back here, he, he struggled bleeding from, from a battle from picking off some terrorists one by one. Uh, in in yeah. a series of I'll surprise attacks, <laughs> um, so I, th- I think you know it's it, it somehow everyone everyone can be the hero. Your dad is a hero who, who can take on terrorists. Yeah, I think that's definitely. I mean, the thing is that Die Hard, I think, has suffered. You know, I mean, you you look at um, we were talking about it a couple of weeks ago. The Fast and the Furious franchise gets to number six. Number six is a strong entry, although four and five were terrible. Well, we've had Die Hards one through five. Hmm. Is it going to be this the same sort of pattern? One, two, three. All right. Four, five. Not so good. Oh, there's also an interesting thing that I know. So I watched Die Hard, uh, A Good Day to Die Hard last week. Right. And I got the distinct impression that they were doing a, a an Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Oh, Although I, was... I haven't seen it, but I got that as well from the release. Having the introducing the sun. Is definitely like the handover because this. How more? How really realistically? How many more films can they make with Bruce Willis as the hero? Well, exactly. Or many, not in that type of role, without it looking silly. I mean, you don't, you don't want to watch Last of the Summer Die Hard, do you? Really? No, <laughs> no, no. Uh, honestly, uh, Good Day to Die Hard is not. You know, you put Die Hard next to a Good Day to Die Hard, and you're like. Yeah, no. But good data I had. First of all, it's sprightly. It's not two-hour, 20-minute mega blockbuster action-thon. It's a 90-minute. There's an action scene at the beginning, an action scene in the middle, and an action scene at the end with some stuff in between. The, it's very lightweight. But I think that the guy who plays John McClane's son does a good job of taking up you know, there's the potential there that if that guy was in a movie more like Die Hard, he would do a good job. 
So, you it, know... It, it, it's really odd, because I, I, I feel like, you know, Bruce Willis is, is bigger than John McClane. It's odd he keeps going back to this sort of character that launched him all the time. He can go, go off and do another action movie and be a completely different character. I, I, I'm wondering why they do keep dredging up the Die Hard brand. Because he doesn't need it to make a movie. Yeah, but the, well, you say that as if, like, that's an unusual thing to do in Hollywood. Obviously, they're doing it because it makes money and if people are familiarity. So he has, done the, he has done the other... He's, he's kind of the... Uh, what's it? Uh, what's the song with, the, with the, all the older actors? Red. Expendables. Uh, no, but the other thing that he's done with... Um, mm. on his own with oh, Red. Helen Mirren. Yeah. Red. That's kind of as great as it is. I mean, I don't know whether they'll make a third one. Probably. But based, kind of those those are based on a comic, though, aren't they, I believe? And I think the other thing about it is they're certainly not going to make a third one because I, I didn't want to see the first one, watched it eventually on DVD, thought it was good, second one came out of the cinema, and I was like, I really can't be bothered to go and see that. And that's the kiss of death. Uh, like, think, they were hoping it, to capitalise on the later goodwill on the second, of the first one, and in fact, it didn't work. It so, is a bit, it's a little bit of his Ocean's Eleven thing. It's where the actors are all having a tremendously fun time working together, and the audience is just allowed to turn up and watch them ooze over each other, having a giggle. But, but yeah, I mean, what other role of, is Bruce Willis other than John McClane? That's the question that I'd ask. But he's Bruce Willis. He's, he's, he is Bruce Willis. You see Bruce Willis and go, oh, it's Bruce Willis. He's a proper film star, you know. In that terms, he is just the character. He's just him, you know. He's not. He, but, he did. He, I mean, it was interesting with him because he did in the in the well, maybe late nineties, early noughties, when he made this decision that he was going to try and more thoughtful, quieter things, which is quite interesting. And then he always went, "Nah, I want to blow stuff up." <laughs> yeah, I mean, because if you think about it, Bruce Willis is defined by his great performances. Uh, as in the, the high points of his career, such as The Last Boy Scout, Pulp Fiction, Fifth Element, you know, but in all those cases, that's Bruce Willis doing a good turn. Yeah. In the case of Die Hard, John McClane is John McClane, and I think that's why they keep going back to it over and over again. Yeah, but, but because John McClane is not an everyman anymore, he's a superhero. Except that for the fact that actually, if you compare John McClane to Jack Bauer in 24, Jack Bauer became something ridiculous because they made all these important dramatic story points where by the end of 24, everybody in the world's intelligence communities knew who Jack Bauer was. Everybody knew him. Everybody. There wasn't a person that didn't know Jack Bauer and that made it a bit difficult for him to be an espionage type spy character. You know, whereas John McClane never ever stopped being a cop. He's just a cop. At the beginning of Good Day to Die Hard, you see him briefly, for the first time ever, being a cop. Nobody knows who he is. I mean, he goes to Russia. Nobody, The name John McClane is not whispered with fear in Russian mob circles. They don't know who the hell he is. So actually, they could have gone on that line of keeping him down. And then he always he's just the little engine that could. But, yeah, they haven't. It's the audience that he's got a reputation with, not the other characters in the story, and that's what I think they kind of lost sight of. It's perfectly plausible to believe that nobody knows who the hell he was. Well, yeah, because in the first two movies, he's a victim of circumstance. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The third movie, it's a revenge movie, and the villain is picking on him because of things he's done previously. He's dragged into the mess. Although even that, even that is smoke and mirrors. He doesn't care. 
the guy in the third movie doesn't it was yes by circumstance he and his brother were both bad seeds and by coincidence you know john mcclain killed his brother but at the end he goes yeah honestly i didn't really like my brother i was just keeping you occupied while i stole all this money and of course people no, he, was, noticed... he, was like, he was like yeah i didn't like my brother but he's not going to get killed by some flat foot I think well, yeah, I mean, there's that Bob. There's that posturing, but you get the feeling that really it's about the money, and that, they even refer to that in the last Die Hard movie. Is like in the end, it's all about with these people, it's all about money. They don't care about. It. There's no personal connection because they're sociopaths. They don't really care about anything else. There's no principle. It's all about giant wadges of cash, and so you've got to. Blank everything else out. In, in many mind. ways, I suspect that is also Bruce Willis's problem as well. Back again, <laughs> let's, let's, move, let's move away from that. Perhaps. Yeah, no, I mean, it's um, one of the major movies of the year, so it was worth having a discussion about it. But yes, but that, I mean, yes, it did set a tone, and and although it is, you know, without a doubt, one of the greatest action movies ever made, it did. The problem with the difference, the thing about Muscle Man movies, is you can keep churning them out, and some of them will be fine. And some of them won't be quite as good. But you know what you're getting. Yeah. You know, yes. later Arnie period movies, such as The Sixth Day, demonstrate this. They're very mediocre, but there's nothing bad about them, particularly, um, unless they just don't work. As soon as you go, we want a relatable character and we want intelligent writing, that's where you set yourself up with a problem in Hollywood. Uh, my, my parting comment about Die Hard, because it was an important film, and it, it, it did kind of change the paradigm slightly, because for, for a lot of the 90s, a lot of films were described as Die Hard in, insert location here, and it was about bumping off a limited number of bad guys in a particular location, like uh, Cliff Fall. Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger, sorry. Yes, which was you know, Die Hard in the Mountains, uh, with John Lithgow. I mean, th- there was a lot of, it's Die Hard in blank. Uh, tag, you know, descriptions of movies going around. What's interesting about what you just said is that, in fact, one of the places, therefore, that Die Hard could be seen to have had a massive effect is video games, because in a way, Die Hard is like a video game adaptation of a stealth game. Yeah. You're trying to pick off, you can't take them all on face to face so you have to lurk around and then you know, yeah, and you almost have quasi boss fights as you pick off the lieutenants working your way towards the big boss at the end. Yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, we shall come to the year of Metal Gear Solid. Until then... Wait a second, Metal Gear Solid is die hard on a Nova Scotian research, military research base, then? (laughs) Uh, Pretty much, yes. I would would say that was one term you could use for it. Wow, cool. Thank you, Director. Wow. Mind blown there. (laughs) I've blown Leo's mind. I didn't think such a thing was possible. Anyway, let's see if I can do the same thing with something else. Uh, Justin, where, where, did, where, do you, where does your eyes wander to on our, on our menu? Uh, it, is, it, is, it is completely kind of tuned to Who Frames Roger Rabbit. Really not Beetlejuice? Well, I love Beetlejuice, but I absolutely, as an, as an animated fan, I remember, uh, I remember vividly when I, when I sat down and watched Who Frames Roger Rabbit, it was like the most enchanting thing i think i've ever seen and actually i've watched it recently and i still love it it is beautiful it is just the thing i love about it is that the making of is as interesting as the film because in the days now you know where a lot of this stuff could easily be done with cgi 
you know, the interesting about Roger Rabbit is the fact that all the animated characters interact with real things. It's not it's not computer effects. They are actually all the things they're holding and moving around are there. It's a physical effect. And they had to build these incredible contraptions that would then the animation is on top of. Um, so it was just, you know, it was uh, I, I just love it. It's 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 got what I also love about it is that for anyone who loves animation to bring all these characters together from all different uh, uh, studios had not been done before. There's all these huge, great rivalries between, you know, uh, Tex Avery and Disney and Warner Brothers. And suddenly, you know, you've got that iconic scene. You know, it says it all really when you've got Donald and Daffy playing, you know, having a duel on the piano against each other. If you love animation, you know, and the history of animation, it's a perfect kind of homage and, you know, a kind of love letter to that. I, I adore the film. There's, there's a couple of things that I would... I mean, the wife's muttering Mary Poppins in the background here, which is, of course, exclusively Disney. I think that Who Framed Roger Rabbit, in historical terms, is seen as another one of these interesting failures we come up against so often. Really? You know, like... I, yeah, I don't... Well, when was the last time you you sat down and thought, you know what I really want to watch today? Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Well, you know, I, I did also kind of regard it as a kid's film. I saw it as a kid and I loved it as a kid. Uh, and, it, and, and you know, it's cartoon characters and, and they're in the real world. It was a fascinating concept of tunes, this, this life form, which is was very vaguely described of, of how they're created. Um, I, I was amazed by it. I mean, I watched it frequently when I was a kid. I don't watch it now because it's kind of burned into my brain. Uh, exactly, I've watched it a lot. Oh, I've watched it maybe two and a half times. I hated it. And the wife hated it. Just, Justin, I think we need to do our own spin-off <laughs> podcast. Enough of these boo-hahs. <laughs> no, seriously, though, I mean, the, the animated shoe being pushed into the dip and dying is one of the yeah, most that's... gut-wrenching images of my childhood. I, really? I, I fast-forward through that bit. It is horrid. Right. Um, so, so, wife, I don't hate it. I'm just. What, what's your beef? I have a real issue with Who Framed Roger Rabbit as a woman. Okay. As a female growing up watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the whole Jessica Rabbit and Betty Boop and all the. Even the cartoons have to be sexualized. Even the cartoons have to have tits and legs and arse. And, you know what I mean? It was sexist beyond belief. And I hated every moment of that little baby with his grotty little voice and doing all the sexist, yeah, Herman, with his smoking cigar. I hated every piece of how male and sexist and absolutely nasty that was towards women. Sorry, can't, I couldn't hate you. Sorry. I was only 11. That- <laughs> I think that maybe is a little harsh. I mean, because it is it is all about the forties and yes. those. Uh, that, don't don't they judge are, me by how I'm drawn. Those characters, uh, certainly Jessica Rabbit, even though she's a made up character, she is heavily based well, on. She's also the, the particular type of character you had in that. It is also femme fatale. It is absolutely kind of film noir. All of that stuff. I think you know. I think it's a bit harsh. I don't think it's. In any way, as kind of nasty as you may perceive. I just remember watching it, thinking this is just really, really, really male. 
It's very male. The jokes are very male. Hey, toots, do 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 do. It's all very noir, noir male jokes. It's male humour and it's very sexist. And I remember watching that, and I was quite young as well. And I remember watching that, thinking, I don't get it. And as I got older, I remember hating it. The more I watched it as I got older, the more I hated it. The more I understood just how humiliating it actually was. So from a female perspective, actually, I really don't like it. So it's it's a it's a harsh one. It's a harsh criticism because it's it's coming from a personal perspective. It's there's a, there's going to be women out there who are going to love it, but for me, that it was too. I hate all that tuts and I hate all of that. Yeah, babes, and I hate all of that kind of yeah, sexy eyeball popping at the at the woo woo kind of stuff. Yeah, that, I hate yeah, all of it. That is all classic 1940s cartoons, and everything that if you are looking at a period in in the past, and you are you know basically showing that there, there are things that are going to come up in. that are less comfortable because you know um, uh, it was obviously more sexist time during that era. Yeah, uh, it was it was enormously sexualized, and the whole wolf whistling of women. There's a famous cartoon about that, isn't there? Where, yeah, where I, the, I think that I think where where we're, I think that well, I, I can sit, sit in the middle of it. What I'd say is the thing that made me feel nothing particularly strongly about it was that I don't think that the story of Who Framed Roger Rabbit is particularly strong. I think that you know. It's it's yeah, it's, a story about it's who's written. Cheating, it's, who's cheating on whose wife? Well, yeah, I mean, there's this. Wife's cheating on him. That's the story. The whole plot of Who Framed Roger Rabbit is not particularly epic or mythic or strong, and that kind of lets the rest of it down. It's just all this, you know, you know, there are worse uh, things that do that. I tried to sit through the '90s movie, early '90s movie, Cool World. Didn't even get halfway through. No, that's, um, that's not. Yeah, that's tricky. Yeah, um, but honestly, it's just an, it's, it's kind of a. I think that's the point. It's like they've gone oh forties, fifties animation, and then they've gone well. What else was around? Oh, well, there's this kind of pulp detective thing, and I think that's where they went wrong. I think it would have been a, a better thing if they gone well. No, we don't want to confuse the. We we want it to be about animation. Really, we don't want it. What they did was they went, well, there's a real part and an animated part. So in the animation, you have all of those visual ticks and the themes of 40s and 50s animation. So what was happening in the real world? And then, unfortunately, they seized on the fact that in reality, uh, the, rea- the sort of popular entertainment that was trying to attempt some sort of verisimilitude was detective fiction and gumshoe fiction. And, and I think, although on theory, you know, on the basis superficially that seems like a good idea i think the problem is that it end up confusing the the approach i don't know i still love it so yeah. i don't know yeah I, that's a, I mean, that was my thing yeah i mean i, I just remember it uh, as a kid and just like it's cartoons in real life this is amazing i could watch this as a series and there was never a sequel which was kind of surprising but apparently well, like, very... i think that's they, because... did the shorts. they did the shorts which were wonderful and i must admit i do remember fondly if you go, if you went to see a Disney film for three years after that, you would get, you know, a Roger Rabbit thing. And as I say, you know, I mean, all these kind of films, I always look on the visual thing, certainly animated films, and I detach myself. So I can understand all the kind of things Sue's talking about. Um, but for me, you know, I love and adore all those kind of 1940s cartoons. And so it was kind of 
my perfect. There you go. I, well, I mean, I think the fact that it, doing, yeah, that's me sorted. I think the fact that it didn't get a sequel. I mean, it didn't get a sequel because it underperformed, and I think that reflects the fact that they they got it wrong was as far as the writing went. I think I've got to state that that film possibly put me off the whole noir genre, to be honest with you. If you want the truth, that, I think, is what... The reason I don't like gangsters and the reason I don't like those kind of things is because of you throwing Roger Rabbit. Oh, OK. <laughs> if you want the truth, I think that, that film put me off the whole genre of the 1940s, the whole gangster movie thing. That's a, that's a real shame, because there's loads of great oh, things that would... Uh, th- yeah. There's loads of great things that would uh, give you the opportunity to see how dull and banal gangster stories are. I know, but, and that's, that's, you know. I know, but that's... Did you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you no, always okay. wondered why I didn't like that kind of noir stuff, and I think that's the film that... Well, I don't it. wonder why, because I don't like them for similar, but not the same reasons. But anyway, but let, us, let, us, let us move on. Yes, sir. I feel sad because an animated shoe died. It's not quite the same as Sue's grievances. Let's move on. <laughs> let's let's return circle round to Beetlejuice. Now we did discuss Beetlejuice last week Briefly. to some extent. Yes, we did, Justin. You and I discussed. I, I don't Beetlejuice remember any of it. Yeah, generally, um, under the we didn't discuss it specifically, but it covered yeah, it. it we covered it up, but uh, we don't know. Ian, Beetlejuice. How do you feel about that? I, I believe and reasonably well disposed towards it. I mean, it was kind of, I think it was kind of my first kind of, I don't think it was the first Tim Burton film I saw, but it's the first film I knew was a Tim Burton film when I saw it. Uh, and yes, it, it does have a very distinctive visual style. I mean, probably at the time I was, I was probably like, oh, this, this shouldn't be how you do ghost stories. What are you doing? Um, but you know, obviously you get a certain reflection upon it and you just kind of enjoy uh, his thing, and I think this, this this is kind of for me the Tim Burton film that kind of defines his style post uh, Beetlejuice. And, and well, I, it's his first film. That's well, why. That's probably why. Then, well, it explains everything. Right, I'm done. <laughs> no, um, I mean also it, Michael Keaton, uh, and I, I suppose I, I didn't recognise him at all. I'd seen Batman prior to, to seeing Beetlejuice. And I didn't, honestly, even if I knew, I would not have recognised the guy. So I don't know why everyone was freaking out about his being cast as uh, Batman. But yeah, I, I seem to remember, basically it's a, a couple die and then a new family move in and they have a goth daughter and the first couple are haunting the house. Uh, meanwhile, you've got Beetlejuice. I forget what his function is. It's some kind of underworld agent of trickery or something. Well, he's a big... mercenary, actually. A but, mercenary. Yeah, uh, yeah because they, they contract him to haunt out... The people living in their house. Yes, because they they discover that. What what's great about it is, and this is weird, okay? Because Tim Burton, I think Tim Burton wrote this as well, and he's never reached this. It's Gaiman-esque, and I don't use that term lightly. The fact that these people die, and then they go, oh well, we'll scare these people away. And like I remember distinctly, Gina Davis hanging in a cupboard and then ripping her own face off, and the bloody skull underneath, and people just not noticing because it's like, oh come on, people have seen that. That's why they don't see you. The living don't want was, to see it, the death. It's funny because it's a gag as well. I mean, it should be horrific, but it, it's it's funny. Well, it's it's funny because. In the next, very next shot, the woman just moves her along like she's a dress, just shoves her to one side. And it's like, what this, what he's saying, and which is actually, this is very much evocative of Neil Gaiman, the kinds of things that Neil Gaiman brings up in his work, is you can't 
get to people emotionally through stuff that they've seen a million times before. And the reason that Beetlejuice is this brilliant savant is because he takes the time to understand and exploit what the person he's trying to get to is afraid of, even if it's bizarre. And and he, he, he shows you something that's so outlandish you cannot ignore it. And that is, you know, that is a brilliant through line. And and I'm serious, Tim Burton has never again achieved that level of concept. You're saying something so wise. And weirdly, uh, things like Dark Shadows last year demonstrate he didn't even learn his own lesson. Because, like you were saying, Justin, Tim Burton kind of goes round and round in a loop. You've yeah. seen it all a million times before. You need to be doing something. Di- the only time that he ever stepped back up was Mars Attacks, in my opinion, which, of course, yeah. he based his entire direction on a series of tops trading cards. And that that push, that restriction made it a, a different thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, you know we, we're familiar now with, with Tim Burton, but at the time, this thing was like nothing else. I mean, it just hit you. You was like... Wow, we hadn't really seen this this kind of visual because it's like a you know it's like a cartoon, and you're but you're watching it and you and it's like and it looks all pretty and kind of weird and strange, and then it's really generally quite dark and it's it's uh, yeah it's a it's it's absolutely brilliant it's it's wonderful it's 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 the voice of an animator with all these abundance of ideas and visual style who is literally going I've got what I want here I'm throwing all this. This is what I want to do with my life, and it's you know it's a celebration that it's it's amazing film. So, Ian, uh, would you like to pick something for us to, to discuss now? Yes, is, uh... I did have one. Where did it go? Well, uh, that's that's very brief. Oh no, of course, Naked Gun. Um, I saw this when I was young as well, and it's a film I held my sides laughing when I first saw it. These days, I just have an amused smile, and it fades occasionally when O.J. Simpson walks on the screen. So, um, yeah. uh, what do you guys feel about um, this? Because it did it, it, it kind of... Well, it's really strange to say. Well, I've seen, the, I've seen the TV show prior yes. to seeing the, A lot of people haven't, which I love the TV show. And it's in many ways a kind of slightly watered down version of that because it's yes because it's because it's longer and the jokes are a little bit thinner. But I still but I still really enjoyed it and um, and I have seen it recently and I, I agree with you. It's kind of mildly amusing now, but it was you know it's kind of Leslie Nielsen was still in his prime there and it's fun you know to get that I was watching it with the with with memories of the TV show. So I was just enjoying inhabiting that place again. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a, it, it does have awesome film. One of my favourite gags of all time is when he's searching uh, what's-his-name's office at night and he pulls open the drawer and goes, bingo, and then pulls out a bingo card. <laughs> it's, it's just yeah. I, I, I aspire to that level of comedy. Police Squad, the TV series that, that preceded The Naked Gun and its sequels, I think that it's it's strange that that's the strongest Naked Gun material. My one of my favourite gags is um, in one of the Police Squad episodes. Uh, Frank is talking to a witness, and then the witness is is on target, so gets attacked, and she's like, 
watch out, he's got a gun. And he like dodges out of the way of the bullet. Watch out, he's got a knife. <clears throat> and then he's there stabbing her. Watch out, he's got a Picasso. And he comes at him with a painting. And this is a ridiculous stream of, of things that this guy... Watch out, he's got a hepatitis. And the guy's got an open vein running towards him. And it's just like, wow. And the thing about it was, yeah, the television series... For some, they, what they did was they kind of they had a few more jokes in the Naked Gun movie than they would have had in an episode. But that means that per half hour, yeah, each episode of the series was jam-packed with jokes. Yeah, well, the TV structure is absolutely a continuation of Airplane. It's that, like, you know, we're going to just bludgeon you to death with a series of puns and jokes, and you won't be able to take it. Whereas the actually making of the film was a far more sedate affair. They actually, you know, were creating a story, and they it wasn't quite that crazy. Well, I think that's one of the things is that, um, you know, Airplane as well has this kind of thing where they're trying to mock the airport movies, and so... They try and stick to that kind yep. of uh, structure, whereas actually the, the television structure they were mocking in the Naked Gun or in Police Squad yes. um, is just like it. It was obviously a, a field rich for picking with all you know Kojak, Quincy, all of that stuff. The fact that it was a TV show, therefore the format, the, the shorter time, I think helped parody that where the naked gun isn't really yeah it's kind of more broader isn't it really it's not it's not really a parody of anything specific that type of format it's it's you know it's kind of broader it kind of takes its influences and you start getting i think is it naked gun they start getting film references yeah maybe on something else it's the start of that which is actually probably the death of spoof films where they just yeah. start but that started doing it as little kind of sequences that were Mickey takes of films and stuff. And then it, so it's, yeah. But ironically, like- ironically, we sat down and we were like, well, we, you know, the thing about Netflix that I'm finding is, and, and all of the streaming services, is you see films and go, oh, good, I really want to watch that. And then you see things you're kind of casually interested in watching. Now, you don't want to go through all the films you want to watch front and centre in a row because then you'll get fatigued and you'll go, oh, I don't really want to watch anything now. I've done all the good stuff. So you yeah. try and pepper things that you're just interested in and then watch something you really want to watch every so often. And we watched uh, A Haunted House, which has come onto Netflix. Oh, yeah. Just to see, you know, oh, well, it'll pass an hour and a half. It's a, it, it, I think it's the restriction of mocking found footage movies because you can't really just do a sideways into a different type of movie from found footage it's actually far more like things like naked gun and airplanes because they stick to the mocking the found footage and doing jokes about paranormal activity throughout the whole film the whole film is that and it's therefore actually pretty funny i thought it's pretty good actually yeah did you see it yeah i saw it and i thought oh, this is probably going to be a bit lame. And actually, I was quite surprised. It was significantly better than the last, uh, you know, parody, horror parody ones, uh, what were they called, scary movie ones, and they they oh. said it's a kind of rubbish. Yeah. But uh, no, actually, I thought it was generally kind of pretty funny in places. Well, because... Because, because to be honest, it's a good, you know, it's ripe for it, and I'm pleased that that is being parodied because it's an awful, you know, cliche-ridden, it's become, uh, you know... Uh, kind of set of those those type of films. So yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, they were they were very much forced to 
so because they're like well we can't suddenly go sideways and do like a a jersey shore yeah. parody in the middle of this we, we can't there right. is no way so um so they they just stick to their guns and that really forces them to come up with some material that isn't just the lowest common denominator which is good because there are some good jokes in there so yeah thumbs up so uh, and, and so maybe we can have a return to the spoof if we're lucky one day we'll actually get proper spoofs of things we shall see but uh, yeah. it, i mean you know of course um, he's famous for um, doing airplane his pilot airplane is very small uh, but after the, the Nicky Gunn movie, he seemed to have a, a an ever well, it wasn't a, it was ever spiraling downwards in quality terms uh, career of, of being in spoofs because there was things like Repossessed and 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 oh, other, I actually quite liked Repossessed. Sorry, I, well, I, I thought that was a film where the gags were stretched a bit thin. He's, but, I think he's, the, he, he's usually pretty good in whatever he's in. You know, oh, yeah, so he's, I think he's, he's always watchable. He's very charismatic. Isn't, isn't even perfect films. There's something watchable about him in in it, so I think um, you know he was a great boon to kind of. I think Leslie not- Nielsen, less is more. The reason he was funnier in Airplane is because he wasn't the point. The minute he's put properly front and center, where and you take away even the kind of structure of the spoof, that's where it really starts to fall down and become laboured because his the funny thing about Leslie Nielsen is not funny over and over and over again for an hour and a half. You have to have other things in there as well. Um, I kind of agree with you a little bit, Leo, but at the same time I kind of find him when he's too up front, he's a little bit creepy. He kind of becomes the old creepy man then, if that makes sense. He can be a bit... You know what I mean? If he's kind of doing, if he's kind of a little bit more in the background, you get the jokes. You understand what's going on. If he's too far in the forefront, he just looks like an old man being a bit creepy and leery. Okay, fair enough. Maybe that's just me, but I do find yeah. him a bit. It, it kind of looks like your granddad trying to do stuff at a party that's, you know, like trying to be entertaining rather than. I don't know. That's just me. I find him sometimes a bit creepy when he's too far fr- in front. Fair enough. Yeah. Ian, you are. Uh... Oh no! no to say not not really. I was just going to say I, I think the film where his comedy really does fall flat, and I just didn't laugh once and felt felt all the gags really failed totally. Was a Forbidden Planet lost me completely there. Oh, <laughs> nice gag, good. A um, couple of couple of things to point out here while we're on the subject. First of all, this was talking of a haunted house, which is of course uh, the the littlest Wayans brother. This was the year of the debut of Keenan Ivory Wayans. I'm going to get you, sucker. Which, which I um, recently actually was the spoof of black exploitation. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it actually. I I've just seen it, um, and uh, um, yeah, I thought there were some nice little parodies there. Yeah, that's a good. It's, it's a very good movie that one, and the, the fact of someone having their own theme music. Has <laughs> stuck with me to this day. Group of musicians, <laughs> musicians following you around, playing with you. Um, the other thing that, just looking at the list generally, that we should possibly mention, because one of the things I was saying before the podcast began is that um, 1988. You know, we're heading towards the 90s, and as we saw way back in the 70s, the 80s kind of begun. You know, Star Wars and Jaws and Alien 
began the 80s before the 80s actually began and it took a while in the early 1980s for the 70s to go away and we're seeing a similar thing here and i think what the the 88 is kind of like a bit of a a fruit that's about to go a little bit bad and and one of the indications of this is the number of of films with a two or a three Mm. on the end of them um you know we've got cocoon the return which is actually prefiguring the whole thing these days of not giving a sequel a number. But we've got Crocodile Dundee 2. We have Fright Night 2, Hellraiser 2, Iron Eagle 2, Shelly Story 2, Short Circuit 2, Rambo 3. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of sequels. You know, people complain about sequelitis being around these days. But, you know, it's always been with us. This must surely be back in the old model of diminishing returns. No one expected Portuguese 3 to eclipse Portuguese 2, and 2 didn't not eclipse 1. Uh, you know, uh, Rambo 3, perhaps. That's almost a relaunch, really, isn't it, Rambo 3? It is definitely yes, kind of the, giving the 80s one last does, crank. Yes, it does demonstrate that that idea. I mean, weirdly, I mean, I'm not sure about this because I don't have the spreadsheet in front of me. But surely Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, must have had more money in it than Hellraiser because Hellraiser was cheap as chips. The thing that I most remember about Hellraiser 2 is how it seems to spontaneously go from being set in England to being set in America between the two movies. The thing I most remember about it is that it is, without a doubt, one of the most utterly bonkers movies ever made. (laughs) Yeah, the end is absolutely mad. It's absolutely crazy. Claire, Claire Higgins, well, I met Claire Higgins, the actress, and she was like, for years afterwards, it was very hard for her to get dates because men were terrified she was going to brain them with a hammer the second she got them home. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she, she was quite fond of the second film because she only had to turn up for a week because she refused to be the actress covered in blood. They got someone else in to do that bit and she just looped it in. So she was well disposed towards the second film, but she, I don't think it was associated for, for that long. But yeah, uh, it picks up where the other film left off pretty much the same night, spontaneously jumping the Atlantic in the process. And suddenly we have Homicide investigating all this. And, and they call it the rules of the first film, which were kind of poetic in the first one, where you know they put blood on the bed and he starts to come back to life. And all of a sudden this is now like a new rule that happens all the time because they're bringing back dead Claire Higgins, aren't they, um, in, 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 the, in the, uh, the second film. Is it a good depiction of hell, even even a, a sort of Clive Barker hell? Do you think it, it works in that regard at all? Right. I think what, at one point we are going to do it, because Hellraiser is the last of the franchises of the ilk of Friday the 13th and, and, and Nightmare on Elm Street. It started late in the 80s, and it, it, it went right to the 2000s. And it's the only franchise and i know a lot of, there are a lot of horror franchises which just churn out films there's one that we don't get over here which in the states is called witchcraft i believe where it's a seriously an anthology series of films they don't connect to each other they just churn out another film put witchcraft 15 on the end of it okay. so that's no good this is the only thing that i know of where they've got eight films that are all pretty much you know dancing around the same kind of topic material 
And yet, at the same time, I mean, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street is, and Freddy comes back and kills everyone. What they keep doing with Nightmare on Elm Street is, uh, with the Hell- Hellraiser, rather, is that they put the thing, like Pinhead is to Hellraiser, as Freddy is to Nightmare on Elm Street, but they keep elaborating in much more interesting and bizarre ways how Pinhead operates from movie to movie. I'm sure none of it makes a lick of sense, but I find it fascinating. Well, I, I thought the fans of the franchise generally regarded, well, this is at the time, uh, regarded 2 as the one that almost killed the brilliant idea, because 3 was supposed to be a lurch back towards uh, firmer ground. As I recall, Pinhead uh, somewhat diminished in the second film by remembering his human nature and defying Leviathan, or, or whatever the, the big nameless bad was in, in the second movie. Because um, he, he goes up against the, uh, the the super Cenobite that gets made at the end, out of the um, uh, asylum doctor person, as I recall. Well, yes, indeed, we shall we shall come back to it. That's all I can say. Because I've got them all, I want to sit and watch them, okay. and then I want to go. Well, this is what it is. So well, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I enjoy them, and I've caught up with some of the later ones on Netflix, and I must admit, yeah, I've enjoyed them. They they well, do do different things. Everything since uh, number four. So the the latter half of the franchise, none of those scripts are Hellraiser scripts or no. were Hellraiser scripts when they were submitted into the great script chewing mill. They were all other horror movies, and then um, well, that makes a lot of sense. The owners went, "Oh, if we did a few tweaks, this could be a Hellraiser yeah. movie," um, and that's what they did. And that's what makes it so interesting because what happens is, therefore. Um, unlike a straight anthology series, someone who's reading a script for that studio goes, we've got the rights to make Hellraiser, which I don't believe they do anymore, so that's over now, effectively. But they went, we've earned the rights to make Hellraiser, and one of the instructions they're probably given is, if you get a horror script, if it looks like it could be a Hellraiser movie, and that's obviously what it is. I mean, there's such an evocative series that script readers can spot this could be a Hellraiser movie, and they make a, a fairly good discriminating choice between something that could be Hellraiser versus something that definitely isn't. And that's quite good. I like that. I mean, you know, it's an interesting concept, again, which is why I want to sort of come back to it at another time and maybe give it a, well, a bit more attention. If we want to sidestep into a different um, horror franchise entirely, uh, there's Poltergeist, and I feel Poltergeist 3 is very much a case of this is the franchise grave. They just moved the tombstone and put a movie there. Because, um, you know, the second film, because at the end of the first film, they lose the house after, after all that business. And the second film, they're, at, they're homeless, a bit of a low end. and But, but they come together as a family and, and defeat the evil that was always there. And the third one, it's kind of disappointing. It starts off by undoing all that and taking her away from her family, and she's living with some of some relatives in the city who don't really appreciate her. And it's it's a bit yeah in, in a tower. I've block. never seen Poltergeist three. Ah, uh, right. I've never. It's never. It's not that it's. It, it, I, I've, there's been times where I thought I should really watch that, but they, it, it's not really. You have to go out and find Poltergeist three. Yeah, I think it kind of sums it up. I mean, it, it's it's well, it's most infamous for the fact that the, act, the young actress passed away during the making of the movie, and so it, it gained a certain degree of, you know, morbid cachet because of that. Because it's about ghosts, you see. Um, Justin, did you ever see Poltergeist three? I did. I do remember. It's set in a tower block, isn't yes, it? Yes. Yes. One. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, 
you know, I remember it, 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 it didn't have a huge impact, I have to say. I remember the, I remember a sequence with a swimming pool and yes. about it really in some white light. And uh, I think, you know, by then I probably lost interest in it. But um, so, yeah, it's, you know, I seem to remember being OK, but that's that's about it. It's, um, it's definitely another one. You, you saw it in the video shop and you, you rented it and watched it. And that's, that's pretty much my experience of it. Uh, not a patch yeah. on the first Poltergeist, which is just legendarily haunting in my childhood. Uh, let's, uh, there's, a, there's like three points I think we need to hit before we can uh, sail for home. Uh, the first one is a couple of comedy notes, which I'm going to kind of tie together. Big and Coming to America were high comedy notes of 1988. Big, I'm particularly interested in because it's seen as a bit of a classic. It's, it's not not one of my favourite uh, movies, but uh, maybe you guys feel different. I haven't uh, seen either of them. It's, it's kind of fun, but I, it's probably you know it's not something I'd probably want to watch again and again and again. Well, just... yeah. One of the interesting things for me is that the year before this, Vice Versa with Judge Reinhold and Fred Savage came out. Yeah, and I think at the time, Big was the you know, child gets put in an adult's body movie, and vice versa kind of got there first, but was not that well regarded. Taking a look back, uh, you know, 25 years, vice versa is an enormous amount of fun to this day. It, you watch it, and it... And no adult sleeps with the child in vice versa, unlike in Big. Yes, okay, uh... Sue's, Sue's mentioning the disturbing part. I just find that big. I think one of the things that makes Vice Versa still work is that both Judge Reinhold and Fred Savage were obviously working quite closely together, and they managed to inform each other's performance and keep an energy. Whereas Tom Hanks was kind of just making it up because he didn't have an opposite number to, to riff off, so he was just kind of trying to put in a performance. And uh, yeah, I just I just found Judge Reinhold. In, in retrospect, gives the better. It's funnier and lighter and, you know, good. I just, yeah, that's why I, I found. Uh, and coming to America, I think would probably be counted as the comedy high point of Eddie Murphy's <laughs> film career, I think, because it's a, it's a pure, straight comedy. Yeah. Um, Lovely kind of. I think you see the, the breadth of his there where he does all the different characters. That's the first, I believe it was the first where he was doing that kind of stuff. And it's uh, never, never been that good again, I don't think. No, I don't think so. Although, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the later kind of Nutty Professor was kind of moving towards that. But I think Coming to America has got... It's kind of smarter as well. It's kind of the jokes but, in that. I can't, I can't stand that Nutty Professor movie because I caught the Jerry Lewis original by oh, accident. Yeah. I was, it was on Channel 4 at lunchtime one day and I watched it. I was like, what the hell is this? And I loved it. Yeah, and yeah. then along came Middy Murphy's one. I'm like, oh, this is no. There's something about being surprised by the Jerry Lewis one that that meant that when Eddie Murphy just ripped it off and it what I just no, I just preferred because the whole point was that the Jerry Lewis one was kind of spiteful because Buddy Love in the Jerry Lewis original is Jerry Lewis, you know, really seriously having a go and mocking his his comedy partner, Dean Martin, from Las Vegas. Like, yeah. Buddy Love is sort of a parody of of Dean Martin. And the reason he pulls it off so brilliantly, I think, is because they really genuinely had problems between them. <laughs> and he was really putting the boot in. 
<laughs> and that's what makes that movie no, absolutely. work on a different <laughs> level. And of course, sorry, the Eddie Murphy one doesn't have that same thing. But yeah, well, found with the Nutter Professor, he was kind of. It seemed like he was parodying himself, where his buddy love just seems to be kind of Eddie Murphy turned up to eleven. So I, I don't know. I, I just thought that he was likable as the Nutty Professor. But I, but yeah, I mean the original is by far superior. I, I don't doubt that yes. at all. Um, but yeah, in this case, of coming <laughs> to America. I mean, the interesting thing about coming to America is, would you pick it as a John Landis movie? Bearing in mind the fact that John Landis made an American Werewolf in London. Wow, uh, no. You see, and John Landis is one of those guys. He makes movies, and you're like, because John Landis made Gremlins as well, didn't he? Uh, no, so, no, 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 Dante. Oh, it's just Joe Dante mixing up John Landis and Joe Dante. Yeah. Oh, dearie me. The same, similar things. So that's kind of understandable. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's that thing of, like, uh, the same guy made American Werewolf in London and coming to America. I mean, they've both got the word America in the title <laughs> somewhere. So I suppose that it doesn't it doesn't seem to spat to, to, to pan out. It's weird. Um, but there we go. So that was our comedy moment there. And the next thing is people doing things which hitherto they have not done. We've already remarked upon twins uh, mm-hmm. being Arnold Schwarzenegger's comedy debut but we also had dead ringers where david cronenberg did a film that although it broadly stuck to the themes of cronenberg's career hitherto it was like a it's like a drama a serious drama yeah. uh, with with two Jer- two jeremy Irons's being yeah. twins i recall it being a seriously um, disturbing drama and therefore it was very much yeah. like a cronenberg film for me yeah but, uh, but the thing about it is there's no supernatural element to it at all and- Ickiness, uh, the ickiness is toned down. You've got the kind of gynecological instruments, which are kind of, you know, but it's not, yeah, it's, it, is, it is muted. But, oh, yeah, I remember that quite fondly, actually, yeah. Yeah, um, and and uh, the other one that's uh, notable is one of the most 80s movies of the 80s. Tom Cruise does Cocktail, which, again, <laughs> eschews all kind of action. I mean, it, it's kind of like it sits in between Tom Cruise's Top Gun career and Tom Cruise's, uh, you know, uh, other career of, of sort of dramas. It's in between the two because it kind of attempts to take that kind of plucky young yuppie makes good story but do a kind of top gun with it because this time it's like that guy can do anything with a cocktail shaker okay. so you know it, it, that's a bit of a, a a bit of a weird thing for tom cruise to do. it's a very weird movie cocktail if you think about it what what is cocktail really about uh yeah it's not one of my favorites i have to say but they're not a big tom cruise fan no, but I mean, I mean, the weird thing about it is, you watch that movie. It's like there is no other movie that is like Cocktail. No, it's, it's just like, it's not seriously dramatic and businessy enough to be like one of those business. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the one is where he does the. He's in the shirt and he's dancing around the house. Can't remember what that one's called at the moment. Risky business. Risky business. It's not that risky business type strand. But then at the other side, it's not the Top Gun strand. It's just this weird thing that sits in well, between the it's two. He's still so. the best at what he does, though, isn't it? Even if it's a shaky. He's cocktails. the best cocktail mixer in the whole <laughs> goddamn world. It's almost. It could almost be a parody, couldn't it? If you it, could, if you filmed it as Top Gun, but it was about cocktails, that would have been funny. Yes, it, something, that's the thing. Something really mundane. I think it does dance around that without ever actually... I think it's not self-aware enough to know how ridiculous it is. 
So, yeah, and then the last thing is weird movies that... I mean, I suppose you could count this as a bridging movie here. Willow came out yeah. this year with uh, George Lucas producing and Ron Howard directing. This is very much, I think, the last gasp of big cinema fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, George I think Lucas could launch it. The feeling was nobody could. Yes, and then that was it. Nobody did. So, you know... It, and then, of course, uh, big, big sort of fantasy stuff came back on our televisions thereafter with Hercules and Xena. So, you know, that's where the, the home of fantasy came down to. And we've still never quite got back to, you know, the Conan with, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jason Momoa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I quite liked that. I like Jason Momoa. Uh, more so since I've seen Atlantis, Stargate Atlantis, and he's very good in that. And... I like their take on Conan. It's far more like the Robert E. Howard books than the Schwarzenegger one. But for, the only thing I don't like about it is people being a bit like... It's the same thing that p- made John Carter problematic, like they wouldn't call it John Carter of Mars. And it's because they're ashamed these days. At least in the 80s, we weren't ashamed of cheesy stuff no, like that. I and that's what that. it is. I can't miss that. Everything's a, it's a, well, it's it, Star Wars Hangover, I think it was perception that there was still some money to be milked out of science fiction. Yeah, and these days there is money to be milked out of science fiction, but I think they don't want people to perceive it as cheesy. And I think that there's a certain level at which that's problematic. But yes, in the this takes us across the, the Rubicon somewhat to little films or films that are not remembered. We've got Young Einstein, we've got Vibes, and we've got Earth Girls Are Easy. All of which came out. Yeah, these are films that could... So (laughs) stupid. Earth Girls Are Easy, I think, could properly be described as a cult movie. Vibes and Young Einstein have been so forgotten that they are sub-cult movies. Yeah, I've definitely not seen uh, uh, Young Einstein, but I don't know. Vibes, I don't think I've seen that either. Vibes is... um, about that thing uh, made famous in The Dead Zone, the Stephen King novel, where people touch stuff and they get, like... Uh, post-cognitive flashes of where that object has been or what has been done on that object. And I've, both Jeff Goldblum and Cindy Lauper are playing people with that particular power. Um, and um, they, they go on like a treasure hunt to find some artefact using other artefacts that have been handled by people who have been near the artefact. But it includes... my The one standout moment is the moment where uh, Jeff Goldblum and Cindy Lauper meet for the first time in some sort of government facility or whatever, and he, they're sort of chatting away. And Jeff Goldblum at some point has occasion to put his hands on the edge of the table where they're sitting in the room and go, hang on, someone's had sex on this table recently. <laughs> and there's two guys, and there's like a, a woman in the room behind the mirror and she starts to look very sheepish. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, they did some really crazy stuff on here. And it's just building that, yeah. So it's, it's a charming little movie that's been completely forgotten and swept away in the under the rug much like willow and much yeah. like young einstein i mean it's it amazes me that i'm the only one that's seen young einstein because it is that kind of crazy humor that i think everyone present would love have you seen young einstein yes, Sue? I have. do you like it i thought it was amusing yeah it's good it's a good especially like the bit where he launched himself on the yes there's right there's a couple of things about young einstein that are, are crazy good the first one is that it explains, like in a comedy, like a wacky young person's teen crazy comedy, 
the, the theory of relativity in a way that anyone can understand. It's just like, wow, that's incredible. So that that's it's worth the price of admission just to understand. I, my entire understanding of how the speed of light and relativity works is entirely down to that movie. Uh-huh. And the second thing is that I cannot help but remember every time is when they denote how evil the villains in the movie are because their chef makes kitten pie. (laughs) (laughs) They've got this pie dish full of, like, actual live kittens. They're all, like, walking. (laughs) And this guy just rolls pastry. I'm going to have to track this down, aren't I? I'm going to somewhere, because it sounds awesome. <laughs> it's simultaneously terrible. Like It's, it's like, no! It's the, the granddaddy of all internet kitten jokes. Yeah. Because it is just like a pie dish full of kittens, and that's all I put pastry over it. And then they're, sho- they're shoving it in an oven. Oh, fantastic. So yeah, I mean, so yeah, there's the, and and then of course there's Earth Girls Are Easy, which I believe still exists to this day as a cult. I wouldn't Jeff, say classic. Jeff but Goldblum those... as a furry. Oh my god. Well, Jeff Goldblum's in two out and of Jim these. Jim Carrey. I'm Jim yes. Carrey. Yes. Look again. Is that Jim Carrey on the I, screen? It is Jim it Carrey. It occurs to me that Earth Girls Are Easy and Vibes both have Jeff Goldblum in. So he's and he's Gina made this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. It's something so. of a gear change for the man who was making the fly a year or two ago. Well, like, I think that's the thing, Jeff Goldblum. He's done a very. Well, it's weird. Because for a man who's done, yeah, Earth Girls Are Easy. The he's done some terrible films. That he's done. Um, or Transylvania 6500 or whatever. There was, was that. Totally abysmal. Yeah. For someone who's played such a, a large amount of different types of character, he's become typecast as. Jeff Goldblum. But yes. he's not typecast in a particular type of role. It's just that whatever role he... He's a bit like Nicolas Cage uh, in that respect. It, whenever he plays, it becomes Jeff Goldblum. It becomes a Jeff Goldblum performance. That's uh, that's kind of interesting. The only time he's ever been vaguely typecast was when he did Jurassic Park and then Independence Day. Because, of course, that's the same type of... Yes, I'm a boffin, but I speak in that Jeff Goldblum-y kind of way. But even then, he did a film in between called Deep Cover with Larry Fishburne in it. Have you seen this movie? No. Uh, in that movie, he played an amoral sociopathic drug dealer. Right. But as played by Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> the, the line, of course, that everyone remembers to return to uh, Earth Girls Are Easy is, uh, Valerie, are we limp and difficult to manage? <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Have you seen Earth Girls Are Easy, Ian? Tell I have me. seen Earth Girls Are Easy. I think I saw it on my black and white portable off Channel Four late one night whilst I was watching television in bed, and I think it was I think I flipped back and forth between the channels a few times. Um, uh, I I missed out on all the colour that's in the movie. Yes, uh, I can't remember much about it. It's kind of cra- crazy. And I well, at the beginning of Earth Girls Are Easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the beginning of Earth Girls Are Easy, I think when they started making the movie, they said, yeah, oh, it's going to be this crazy science fiction comedy musical. But then as this movie continues, there are less and less musical interludes. So it, it the, the only movie I know of, which I know I've never seen the whole movie, I know that Sue's watched it on Netflix, it's a, it's a perennial 
standout moment. There's a movie called what is it, The Sweetest Thing, in which ra- there's randomly inserted a musical number for no reason right. at some point. And it, Earth Girls of Reach isn't quite as random as that, but and is there a certain way having one musical number in a film is kind of like, well, yeah, that's a moment. Has three or four. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To have a film which has three or four songs, so it's almost a musical, but then the rest of it isn't a musical, that's just weird. Having one musical number is like, well, that's a moment. Having four, but then not committing to the whole shebang, that's just weird. And I think this has contributed to its cult status as, as time has gone on. So there we go. Is, is there anything left in this shoebox of this year to uh, shake out onto the table and prod with a stake? No, 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 no. I mean, I can't see anything on which we could wax lyrical. Uh, well, I, I, I don't think, uh, personally. So if there is something that you know of that was released in 1988 that we've missed that you would like us to discuss... At some length. Oh, and incidentally, I know this is probably well. This is going to be weeks later at this point, but um, we did get a comment on our retrospective sort of looking forward thing about um, talking about the Hunger Games, uh, and I think we implied that we talked about it in the previous episode, but we haven't. I'll just confirm that now. But we could do. There are there are things to talk about to do with that whole phenomenon. The, you know the Hunger Games being a part of it in more depth, so we may take that suggestion forward at another time. But uh, back to 1988, if there's a film that you love from 1988 that we haven't mentioned at all, Ian, where might they go to to tell us about that thing and, and suggest that? Leo, I'm very glad you asked me that question because I want to tell everyone about our Facebook page. That's on. Facebook naturally slash Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in numbers. So 80s, it is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting occasionally. And once long ago in the distant past, we even had discussions there. But podcasts are what it's all about, so point your web browsers towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, E I G H T I E S kids.podomatic.com uh, please go there and please subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download to your own PC for dark reasons of your own um, but there are other places on the web we can be found which my colleagues will instruct you about now well I, I'm currently writing my blog that's all I know that I'm writing at leostablefer.blogspot.com where you can also find some of our older episodes because I still although it's on my task list for very soon I still haven't done the, the archive page yet but it is, it, is, it is to be forthcoming directly there will be some time set aside to it very shortly I can assure you and I'm not doing anything else that I know of at the moment because Bridgetown is over uh, I mean, not over, over, but it, I finished the writing part of it, so there's no weekly component. Uh, so that's kind of it for me. But Justin, where can people go to find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, well, you can see examples of the work I've done so far on uh, Tasman Bridge Town, uh, as as well as other examples of my work on my DeviantArt page under the name Justin Wyatt. So there we go. That's where you can find us on the interwebnet. You know, it's 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 quite sad. The next time we do a year show, it, it's going to be the last of the 80s. It is, but it's 1989, people. That's a year. Well, yes, four I, years, Justin. Goodness me. Cracker. No, it has to be said that uh, 1989 
you know, you can say, oh, it's the last of the 80s, like we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Or, no, no, no. You know, it's not so much the barrel. Yeah, it's kind of like we, our, yeah. our signature thing is the 80s, and this is the last year which had the word 80s on the tin. After that, we're into something called the 90s, which is like, you know, initially it starts out as the 80s fading away and then becoming the horror that is the 90s. But um, all the same, I feel, like, I feel it's like lump in my throat. This is our penultimate 80s episode. Uh, well, all films. We will be returning, uh, obviously, to the 80s during the 90s. I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting when we go forward into the 90s is um, the fact that we're going to have to keep referring back and say, well, I can see why they tried to do this, bearing in mind the success of these things in the 80s, but they still haven't quite got their head around the fact it's not the 80s anymore. So the 80s are going to hover like a ghost over the 1990s. Uh Uh, But of course, once we've done 1989, we have a task before us, do we not, gentlemen? Uh, Yes. Well, in the 70s, of course, because the 70s happened. Oh, yes, of course. You know, our, our, our we did a top four. five, but we felt confident to do the, that top five without first reviewing the massive amount of material left open to us because we have limited experience of the 70s. When it comes to the 80s, we were there a lot longer. We've now done ten shows going all the way through them. So, of course, the job of picking five films, which are our favourite from the 80s, will be made that much easier. <laughs> oh, no, wait. Um, but, yes... So following 1989, of course, there will be our massive, yes. uh, you know, epic special on like on the top five. Yes, yeah, so, so the wife did her top five of the 80s. We we, we may agree uh, with I, her. We I'm jolly glad we've done it this way. I'm rapidly rubbing off Roger Rabbit right now from my list. That's gone. Too controversial <laughs> around here. Uh, well, top five is a big thing. I mean, I love Roger Rabbit, but yeah, five. Mm, yeah, no. Okay, probably not. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. I look forward to. Uh, to, to uh, making my decisions. I have an idea of three of them, but uh, the other two I'll have to... So hmm. let, the, let the speculation begin everywhere. Uh, of course, the, the important part that everyone should know uh, up front, you know, I don't know when we're going to get around to doing this top five. It'll be within the next couple of months, though. But the important thing everyone should know is we don't tell each other what our top five are. We reveal as a surprise. In the 70s, we managed to have no overlaps. Um, there is... certainly enough movies in the 80s and good movies at that that the same thing could entirely happen um in 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 the 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 next bit but who knows certainly not us so uh, with that anticipation now at fever pitch it's time for us to go and uh, we'll see you next time so for me it's bye-bye and Uh, for me also it is goodbye and goodbye from me And a jolly 1988 that was. My cat's meowing. It wants my attention. <laughs> yeah, that's cat's view. It, it, it's, well, it, it's trying to pour its way through the pastry. Well, it, it, it walked into the room whilst you were discussing pastry and kittens. So <laughs> I felt awful the entire time.